fair to middling, like fair to middling, like I'm all right. This is the same conversation I had with her. What, Grandma? What are you saying? <laughs> Just say okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, good to see you guys this morning. If I've not met you before, hello. My name is Tom, and I'm married to Jess. We've got four kids. And um, the most important thing about me is that Jesus saved me from death. Um, and I've been following him for the last almost half of my life, the last 17 years. Um, I've been doing my best to... to to become like him and failing daily um, and then trying again and failing and then trying and then failing. So, um, but he is so gracious and good and it is my joy and privilege to, to follow Jesus um, in that journey of becoming who I really am in him to, to, to be doing that in this community as a gift. Uh, I've been, I've been here for most of my adult, like all my adult life in this community. So thank you for your grace towards me. Um, as I bumble and stumble along. And it's so cool to see you guys. Like there's so many people in this room, we're on the same journey. We wanna be with Jesus. We wanna become like Jesus. We wanna do what Jesus did and we need each other to get there. And so I so appreciate Heather, what you were getting us to pray for and think about that need for unity, that need to be reminded that, oh yeah, we're not doing this alone. We get to do this together. And I'm just so grateful for you guys. So one of the main aspects of, of this journey of discipleship, though, is immersing ourselves in the story of Scripture. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we want to live our lives as if Jesus was living them as us. We read in the Scriptures that Jesus immersed himself in, he was shaped by, and he submitted himself to the story of the Scriptures. Both the God they reveal and the story that he was weaving throughout all of time and space. So we, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, uh, we should want to do the same, right? We want to be like Jesus. And Jesus was a man immersed in, shaped by, and submitted to the authoritative word of God found in the Bible. Um, it's important to remind us why. Though, like Klaus was saying in the beginning of this morning, like we come together, we do some of the same things every week, and it's easy to just kind of fall into the slot of like, okay, this is when I show up, and I try to stay awake for 40 minutes as Tom talks to me, even though these chairs are really comfortable. And I'm going to forget what he said in seven minutes after this is done. Maybe eight. But um, why, why do we open the scriptures? This, like, we just heard what we were reading about. Why do those things matter to us here and now? Like that Herod killed some baby boys years ago, that Rachel wept. What does that have to do with my life here and now? We can easily forget why we do the things that we do. And in our beautiful beginnings of devotion to Jesus, these things can quickly devolve into rote religious behavior. Um, so here's the, here's the deal. As disciples of Jesus, we are learning how to live under the rule and reign of a good king and a good kingdom. But every now and then, sometimes stronger than others, our old ways rear their ugly heads. Anyone else? We forget the plot. We forget the humanity and the person we're bitter towards. We forget we're not the center of the universe. We forget that our best thinking doesn't get us anywhere good. We forget that the new way is not the same as the old way. We forget that we're already loved and we don't need to earn it. We forget, we forget, we forget, we forget. So we come together and we open up the story of God to be reminded, to learn how to remember. The scriptures we trust and believe are inspired by God and they're useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare us and equip us to do every good work. So we take time to remember. We slow down and we take a deep breath 
and we submit ourselves to the word of God. His word through some mysterious, beautiful truth is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. This is why we need to remember because we so often forget. We need to be equipped. We need help and we need to be exposed. So would you pray with me before we dive into the scriptures together this morning? <clears throat> Let's pray together for God's help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you now as we really are. We pray that we would be honest before you, Lord, this morning. And so I ask honestly and humbly, Lord, for your help. Um, I ask that you would anoint me to speak the truth of who you are this morning, that Jesus, I could clearly point to you in everything I do and say. And Lord, would you help us through the cobwebs and confusion and the millions of things that are going on in our minds, would you come and surprise us this morning with your presence, with the truth of who you are, with the truth of who you, what you've done, and with the truth of, of what you want to continue to do in us and through us, Lord. So come have your way. We invite you, Holy Spirit. We are grateful that you know each and every person in this room. You know every hair on our heads. You know every thought we've ever had. You know every dream and hope and aspiration. You know all of our anxieties and fears and our insecurities, yet you welcome us closer and closer to come and be with you. So Jesus, like we read earlier today, would we come close to you so that you could touch us and bless us this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you guys this morning about the perils of waving. Um, have you, like me, ever had the terribly awkward situation of assuming a wave was for you, but it was really for the person behind you? It happened this very morning. Susie was up here on the stage. She was trying to say something to Thomas, and I gave her a huge thumbs up, and she was like, I'm not talking to you, Tom. I'm talking to Thomas. She did awkwardly, kind of in a pitiful way. Okay, Tom, here, thumbs up back to you. But has anyone had that experience? It's terrible. It's awful. It's awkward. And I mean, I've had too many to count. Um, that feeling of, oh, they're not waving at me. They look like they know that person. Waving. I don't even know them. I don't know why I'm assuming they're waving at me anyways. We're in an airport in another country. Why would they know me? But now what? How do you recover? What are you supposed to do? So I don't know about you. Um, sometimes when I read the Bible, the same thing can happen. I assume the scriptures are waving at me. And I'm waving back. And they're really waving and pointing at Jesus. We easily read ourselves into the story in a way that isn't intended. The nod you thought was towards you was actually perhaps for the person behind you. So we spend a lot of time here thinking about and talking about this collection of books from thousands of years ago, written in differing literary styles to people in faraway places. And to put it bluntly, why should we care about a collection of ancient Jewish literature? For those of us who are following Jesus, the answer is simply because Jesus did. So if we've got that sorted, a slew of other questions emerge. Since we do care, how do we read it correctly? And how do we learn to ask the right questions about what it's saying? Like, you know, we're reading through the Old Testament. 
millions of questions are popping up. Like John popped into my office this week, like, and I think the question he asked was, how many wives does one man need? I said, sit, sit down. It's one, <laughs> yes. Um, so all kinds of questions pop up. Is it about God? Is it about me? Is it about ancient Israelites? Is it a moral handbook? Is it a theological dictionary? If I were to summarize the question, it's this. Who and what is the story of the Bible really all about? All right. Yes, it's true. Now you can go home. But we can say that. But what does that really mean? Jesus has an answer for us. If you guys have your Bibles, let's open them up to Luke chapter 24. And then we're going to think about this key idea as we read and study the, the scripture for today. But then I think it's hopefully going to be helpful for us in our ongoing journey of becoming like Jesus. So Luke 24, just to kind of catch you up in the story, Jesus has just come back from the dead. And he appears to his disciples. And apparently he's hungry, which apparently coming back from the dead, uh, you work up a bit of a hunger there. So he's, verse, we'll pick up in verse 41. He asked them, do you guys have anything to eat? I'm starving here. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. So he's with his disciples. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So for Jesus' disciples, they would have understood that what he means when he's saying the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's the entire Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament, it's about me. That's what Jesus is saying. So then he goes on, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, to be there. That would have been incredible. And then he goes on. So that's, we know it's about Jesus. And so it's truly embarrassing how often I've read the Bible assuming it was really about me. Just like that awkward feeling of being waved at when it's not really you. But there's more to the story. Let's read on in Luke 24. He says, so he opens up their minds about the scriptures and he says this, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. This is Jesus' explanation of what the entire story is about. So it's all about him, and it's all about the story of a Messiah. Jesus is saying that these stories create an empty container. All the stories in the Old Testament create this empty container, an emptiness that has to be filled. And he is claiming that he fills to the full all of that emptiness. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who must suffer and die and come out victorious through the test and then offer forgiveness to all humanity. This is the theme we read throughout the whole Old Testament. Moses, David, the high priest, the scapegoat, all of these are a type of Messiah, but inevitably they fail. They fall short. They fail the test, but not Jesus. He is the one. The Bible is continually nodding to the Messiah. The Bible is about the Messiah, but interesting twist, Jesus somehow makes it about us. He taps us on the shoulder and invites us to become one with him, to be his body, his hands, and his feet, to come and see and how to live as Messiah people. Did you know that to say that you're a Christian means that to say that you're a Messiah person? I'm identifying with this Messiah here. 
In short, the story of the Bible and all of its main themes come to their fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying about the Hebrew Bible here in Luke 24 is actually what it's about. Every story, every book is about an anointed representative going into death on behalf of others and coming out to life so that new life and forgiveness can be announced to the world. Okay, so here's the key idea that I want you guys to think about this morning as we land in a, a few scriptures in Matthew, but just as you are reading your Bible in general, as you're thinking about how to engage this book, it's about Jesus, and the story it's telling is it's about a Messiah. So for, for us this morning, the, the essential key to all Matthew's theology is that in Jesus, all God's purposes have come to fulfillment. All of those empty containers that all of those stories have left us with are going to be filled up in Jesus. He has filled to the full all the empty containers of the messianic hope laid out in the story of the Old Testament. Augustine puts it this way, The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. So, with this in mind, let's turn to the teaching text for today. Hopefully this kind of key will help us understand why the heck Matthew is, is saying these kind of dissonant stories here. So just to catch you guys up, we are going through the origin story of Jesus. We're going through the entire Gospel of Matthew over the next couple of years. And we've gone through um, a little bit of his genealogy. We've learned what his name means, what his purpose is, why he's here. And then we've learned the story of his miraculous birth and how God has ordained this from the beginning, how he protected him, how he's coming to save all of humanity from their sins, all kinds of good stuff to listen to on the podcast if you want to go back and listen. But today we're coming to the close of kind of the origin story of Jesus. How did he get here? And Matthew is writing to a group of Jewish people who would be really familiar with the Old Testament stories. They would be familiar with the empty containers that need to be filled by this Messiah. And so he tells three different narratives here. And this is kind of the end of the origin story of Jesus. And then next week we're going to be diving into the beginning of his public ministry. So this is the backstory, closing of the backstory of the, of the life of Jesus. So three narratives. Let's take them one at a time. So if you guys have your Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we'll pick it up there. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. Listen to this word here, this phrase. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. So we're going to see a theme here. There's three different narratives, and there's going to be three different fulfillments that happen as, as Matthew is crafting this story. Dude, Ma- Matthew, or, uh, Mary and Joseph, what the heck? What a couple few years they've gone through. Um, insane. It's easier forget, to forget as we read the Bible that these are actual human beings um, with real emotions, with feelings, with fears, with anxieties, with hopes and dreams. So this young family uh, who has just had this incredible uh, thing happen where Mary has, is, conceives uh, uh, the Son of God, delivers him in another town, there's angels, there's wise men that come visit him, and all of a sudden they have to flee. Because um, they're th- this crazy despotic king who wants to kill their baby. And so they flee. They head to Egypt, most likely to Alexandria, 
where there was a well-established Jewish community. So they would, they're, they're fleeing the scene to protect this newborn baby they have. This would, fleeing and leaving and going to Egypt would, would pr- uh, um, preserve the life of this baby, but it also is tying into a way bigger story that we're going to learn about here. This would keep them out of the reach of the bloodthirsty Herod. But not only that, for Matthew and the original hearers of the gospel, they would see Egypt as the place where Israel's history and the people of God began. The prophet that Matthew is referencing here is the prophet Hosea. And so in Hosea 11.1, we read this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Matthew is waving back at the story of God using Moses to call the people of Israel out of Egypt, the Exodus story. He's pointing to the Exodus, and he's pointing to Jesus, and he's saying, this is really this. What Jesus is doing is a retelling and a fulfillment of what this story was pointing towards. Or in the words of John Stott, As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the river Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness of Zin for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. And as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of Beatitudes gave his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. This is really this, is what he's saying. Matthew sees striking parallels in the patterns of God's activities in history, in ways he cannot attribute to coincidence. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again, God is bringing the Messiah, who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt, as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. This is what theologians call a patterned fulfillment. Something that happened in the past is a pattern for something that happens in the life and ministry of Jesus. So just like Hosea called Israel's God's son, Matthew is pointing out that Jesus is the true son. And just like Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land, Jesus will make the same journey. It's the first narrative there. Let's turn to the second one, the the return from exile. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise man outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Herod was a terrible man. Uh, panic and fear can led him down a murderous road. But just think about it for a second. If these are real human beings that actually lived through this experience, could you imagine the pain the community in Bethlehem would have felt as their friends and cousins and their neighbors wept for their dead young boys? This reminds Matthew of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's army gathering from Judah in the town of Ramah before they were taken away into exile in Babylon. Jeremiah depicts Rachel, who is the personification of the mothers of Israel, mourning for her children as they are carried away. She is grieving that the nation is no more and considered dead. It also harkens back to the story of the Exodus, right, where Pharaoh kills all the babies as well. Lots of stuff going on here. 
But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of this dreadful scene, the prophet Jeremiah offers a word from God, a word of comfort. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. This is talking about the exile and the people of Israel, basically the country, the nation being destroyed and then being led off into exile in Babylon. And this is a case of an analogy kind of working. This is an analogical correspondence. As Herod attempts to eliminate the newborn king of the Jews, the events of Jesus' early life correspond analogically to an earlier attempt by a foreign power to wipe out God's chosen people. Matthew is saying that the coming of Jesus, the time of exile, is coming to its end. There is hope for your future. The exile is over. And again, remember, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people who are hearing this would have clued in right away. They would have been able to see, okay, this is actually this. So pattern one, we see Jesus in the Exodus. Pattern two, we see Jesus in the return from exile. Last one, this one is is a difficult one, guys. I'm going to do my best to um, explain this one. Let's read in verses 19 to the end of this chapter. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Did you notice that in this reference, there is no singular prophet mentioned? First, it was Hosea. Then it was Jeremiah. Now it is the prophets, plural. So what does Matthew have in mind here? Most commentaries I read this week propose an amalgamation of two messianic ideas that we've talked about in the last few weeks. Number one, this is pointing to that promise of a a king from the line of David. You guys have heard about that, right? And secondly, that the Gentiles are going to become a part of God's people under the good rule and good reign of God's king. So in other words, he's going to restore blessing to all the earth, all the nations, not just to Israel. Sound familiar? That's basically what we've been talking about the last like six weeks. So when Matthew says of Jesus in verse 23, he would be called a Nazarene. He is bringing these two ideas together. Um, in, in Hebrew, the word for branch is Nasser. So Isaiah 11 verse 1, an important messianic text, uses this word. Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, which is the word Nasser, from his roots shall bear fruit. So in other words, from David's royal line shall come a branch, the Messiah. Jesus is the branch. Nazareth was most likely named such. It was named Nazareth by a returning remnant of Israelites from exile who were a part of David's line. Nazareth would be called literally branch town. So Nazareth was in the region of Galilee, which was home to both Jews and Gentiles. Again, God is working out his plan of redemption in an unexpected way. His kingdom is different. His kingdom is right side up, not upside down. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, grew up in a podunk town in the sticks. But from that town would come the branch for all the nations. So Isaiah goes on in verse 11 of of chapter 11. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. 
from Nazareth will come the branch for the nations. So in summary, guys, Jesus is the new Moses who will lead his people out of slavery and bondage and into the promised land. Jesus is the true king who will lead his people out of exile and set up an eternal kingdom that will be a blessing to the entire world. He is the fulfillment of all God's purposes. We did it. You guys okay? All right. A lot of stuff there. Um, I want to just draw our attention to a couple things as we close and then just want to pray for us. There is a strong sense of opposition in these stories we've read over the last few weeks. I think Matthew is making the point that opposition is inevitable, but showing us that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He is the one who will see his promises through. Think about it. There were so many attempts to quench the light of the Messiah. His mother Mary might have been stoned as an adulteress. He could have been killed by Herod or lost in Egypt. But no, none of these things happened because God's hand was on him. The opposition of the enemy could not snuff out the light of lights. Opposition is a reality we're all going to face, but God is faithful and good to deliver us through it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're under an intense weight of opposition. The voice of the accuser is loud in your mind. May you see and know that God is faithful to fulfill his promises and his purposes. Nothing can stop him. We must remember that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. He will fulfill his promises, but take heart in the process. Remember, he has no problem disappointing our expectations of what they should look like. God will do what he will do, and his way is always better than our way. God is consistent and constant. He works continuously. Jesus continues the story of Abraham and David and Israel, yet all the while we see God working in surprising ways. God works in our lives continuously and surprisingly, all the while making sense of our history. So be on the lookout for God to show up in unexpected ways and, as, and be ready to follow him into whatever that may bring. Just like Joseph and Mary, like, okay, Lord, you said it. I'm going to follow you to Egypt now. Okay, where else are we going to go? Like they're all over the place, but trusting that God is with them. So my prayer for you this morning, may God's light shine on us in the darkest night of our souls. May he protect us from the flaming arrows of the enemy with the truth that we are hidden in Christ. May we see that in Jesus, all God's promises are yes and amen. And may he surprise us with his creative plan of redemption. May he fill up all, may he fill to the full all the emptiness in each and every one of us. And I want to go back to that picture of the awkward waving experience. I think that the the good news of the gospel and as we read the scriptures, yes, all of this is a nod towards Jesus. But Jesus somehow in that process, as he's behind us, the picture I kept getting this week as I was thinking about this, is yeah, the Bible is nodding and waving at Jesus and he's behind us. But then on his process of going to that, towards the, person who's waving, he taps us on the shoulder and invites us to come with him. So he's saying, hey, listen, yeah, this story is about me, but I'm going to make this about us. I'm going to include you in what I'm doing. I want, I want you to become one with me. I want to, I want you to join with me in this mission to reunite heaven and to reunite earth. So may you leave with that picture in your mind this morning that yes, all of the Bible, all of history is nodding and pointing to Jesus, but he's tapping you on the shoulder and inviting you to join him in that process. So God, let your kingdom come and your will be done right here, right now, as it is in heaven. And I want to pray a simple prayer, Lord. Would you surprise us this week with your nearness, with your goodness, and with your continuing work in our lives, Lord. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.